Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. That was a slogan that was made very popular in the Christian life not long ago. I'm sure that the, the general thrust of that slogan is still alive and well today, although admittedly I don't hear people say this as often as I used to. But when this slogan became very popular in the Christian world, I became very critical of it. And I am not backtracking that today. I remain very critical of the slogan that Christianity is a relationship, it is not a religion. And I've been critical of it from this very pulpit in the past. It's just simply not true. The Bible doesn't present to us religion as a bad word or a bad thing. We live in a very secularized society. And so some have assumed that if we can present in an a-religious society, Christianity is non-religious, then that will attract the non-religious to it. But the Bible doesn't present it as a non-religion. It is a religion. The Bible says that. The Bible doesn't make religion a bad word. And I just always generally found it kind of deceptive. It's, it's, it's kind of a lie, right? We tell people, hey, I know you're not religious, but come to Christianity. It's not a religion. It's a relationship. And then they come into Christianity, and suddenly we expect of them to be very religious people. And we tell them, you really can't be a Christian without doing these religious things. So it's, it's, it's just not true. But today I am going to go a little soft on it because there is a kernel of truth in it. It's, it's not true. It's an unhelpful and unbiblical phrase. But what I think a lot of people are trying to get at when they say that, there is biblical truth to it. In other words, I guess the better way of saying this is the slogan is not true, but it is onto something. It is onto something. And that is what I think is going to be the main idea of 1 Samuel chapter 15. If you would please open your Bibles to 1 Samuel 15. The last two weeks, we've spent some time to just sort of make sure we take head on and get out of the way, if you will, some of the more difficult elements of 1 Samuel 15. We talked about the divine violence of God commanding the slaughtering of the Amalekites and how we understand that and how we deal with that. And then last week, we looked at divine repentance, God's regret. Does that mean that God makes mistakes? Does that mean that God doesn't know the future? We, we tried to deal with that last week. So now that we've kind of dealt with the distractions, now is time to read 1 Samuel 15 as a whole and really get why did the Lord inspire this? Why is this in our Bibles? What is the true meaning of this narrative? So we will read the whole thing. And I will warn you beforehand that it is a very sad story. 1 Samuel 15 is supposed to leave us with sadness as we are going to see Saul finally getting deposed as king. Saul is currently the king of Israel, but by the end of our reading in 1 Samuel 15, he will no longer have the rightful seat to the king of Israel. So let us read this sad story together. Because the chapter is so long, I would like us to take it in segments. So let's read verses 1 through 11 together first. If you would follow along, for these are the very words of God. 1 Samuel chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. 
And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag the king of the Amalekites alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, of the oxen, and of the fattened calves, and the lambs, and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry and cried to the Lord all night. Let's stop there for a minute. Saul did almost everything that God commanded him. He almost obeyed God. He accepted God's mission to destroy the Amalekites, and they go into the Amalekites, and largely they do that. They destroy everything, with a couple exceptions. Some of the cattle was just too good to waste. Right? Like this, this is food for Israel. This is sacrifices for the Lord. Like why would we waste the cattle? Why would we waste this prime food? And all think of all the things that they use these animals for back then. This is just wasteful to slaughter these. We could use these. Right? And they're not idolaters. They're not sinners. Like if we spare some of the Amalekites and bring them into Israel, they might corrupt us with idolatry. But sheep can't do that. There is no reason... No logical reason why, the, why the, the fattened calves have to die. So they, they kept some of the choice meats. And it also tells us that they kept the king of the Amalekites, Agag. They kept him alive in prison. We don't know why. Maybe it was a bit of a trophy. Maybe there were some interrogation purposes going on here. We don't, we're not told the motivations, but they haven't killed Agag. So they almost obey God. And what we see is that God treats almost obedience as disobedience. God responds not in a kind of proportional way where I'm only somewhat sad because he mostly obeyed me, so I'm mostly happy, but I'm somewhat sad. God treated partial obedience as full, complete disobedience. Saul has disobeyed me. He has turned away from me, and he has disobeyed my commandments. So right from the get-go, we learn an important principle. This is not the heart of the message, if you will, but this is an important thing for us to keep in mind, not only in our relationship to God, but as parents in your relationship to children. And this important biblical principle is this. Partial obedience is disobedience. Partial obedience is disobedience. Saul almost obeyed God. And that's not enough. God regrets making Saul king because of his quote-unquote partial obedience. So God is angry and sad. And now Samuel is angry and sad. You can imagine this is a hard thing for Samuel. Samuel loves Saul. They've had some ups and downs, but remember, if you go back and reread all that we've preached through, he's, Samuel's had this amazing relationship with Saul, and he's had a very important role in Saul's development I can only imagine that Samuel sort of considers himself somewhat of a father figure to Saul. Samuel is angry and sad. God is angry and sad. And so, how does God respond? Look at with, with me at verse 12. 
And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and turned and passed on and went to Gilgal. And Samuel said to Saul, and Saul said to him, or excuse me, and Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. And then Samuel said to Saul, Stop! I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And Saul said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have destroyed the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. So there's this irony. Samuel goes to meet Saul to tell him the bad news. We haven't technically gotten to the bad news yet, but that bad news is that God is done with Saul as king. And he goes to where he thinks Saul is, and some messengers tell him, no, Saul's not there. He was up at Carmel. He built a monument to himself. And then he went off to Gilgal. So Samuel has met Saul in Gilgal. And I, I don't necessarily expect you to remember this, but there is a significance to Gilgal. And that is the place where Saul was anointed king. So there's this very sad irony. The very same place where Saul was made king, he is now going to be deposed as king. But more importantly, in this portion of the text... This text gives us just a brief insight into the heart of Saul. We, we finally start to see in this text what God sees in Saul. God is not happy with Saul. And we finally start to get a glimpse of what God sees when he looks at Saul. This entire portion is just filled. It is just filled with pride. Saul is a selfish, prideful man. One of the first things we see is he set up a monument to himself. He is so pleased with their victory. He is so pleased with his leadership that one of the first things he does is he sets up a monument to their victory, a monument to himself. And not only has he set up a monument to himself, but when he sees Samuel approaching, he shows no spiritual awareness that he has not actually obeyed God. He, he thinks he's done everything God asked. He argues with the prophet. No, you're wrong. I did obey God. And he's so self-assured that what he did is okay, permissible. He sort of, I would argue, he kind of hides behind his religion. Because what's one of the excuses for why the animals were kept? So we could sacrifice. I'm just trying to be religious here. Sorry for being holier than you, Samuel. Sorry, Samuel, I care more about God than you do. Sorry, I care more about worship than you do. I think it's important for us to have fattened calves for worship. Apparently you don't. He's using his religion to cover up his disobedience. We see him shifting the blame. 
right? Yeah, I, I, I devoted the Amalekites to destruction. I kept Agag as prisoner, and I killed the people, so I did my job. Now, I know you heard, I know you hear the sheep, and you see, but who does he say did that? The people. That wasn't me. That wasn't my fault. Samuel begins by reminding him, you are small in your eyes, but your role is very important. Your role is very important. God has made you king. Do you understand your role of significance? Do you understand that you are the leader of all of Israel? He is held to a high, high standard, and he has failed that standard. But when he's confronted with that, he shows nothing but pride. He shows nothing but arrogance. I also want you to notice something. He does it multiple times, but let's just look at one instance of this. I don't want to make too much of this because the text doesn't explain this, but I, I think this is an important detail. Look again at verse 15. Saul said, They have brought them, brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we have devoted to destruction. You will see this multiple times throughout for Samuel 15. Isn't it interesting that when he confronts the prophet of the God of Israel, he does not say that we have kept these animals to sacrifice to the Lord our God. We have not kept these to sacrifice to the Lord of Israel, our God of Israel, no, to your God. Now, I don't think he was consciously doing this. I, again, I, I think it would be making too much to say he was intentionally doing it. But I think this maybe reveals a little bit subconsciously of his spiritual con condition, of how spiritually distant he has grown from both Samuel and God, that it's almost like what we would call a Freudian slip to some degree. He doesn't even, he's not even subconsciously thinking of himself as under God's authority. Samuel's the prophet. Samuel's under God's authority. This is your God we're sacrificing for here. This is his God too. I find that interesting point. But I don't want to make too much of that. The text doesn't. The point is, is clearly Saul is defensive. Saul doesn't see that he's done something wrong. Saul is shifting blame. Saul is hiding behind religion. Saul has set up a monument to himself we get a small glimpse of maybe what God sees when he fears into Saul's heart. And so Samuel brings up a talking point then. He begins to teach Saul about his disobedience because Saul needs to be taught that he didn't fully obey. So verse 22, Samuel says this. In verse 22, and Samuel says, Has the Lord, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices? as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. We're going to come back at the end of the sermon because I think this really is the crux of the issue. Verse 22 and 23, this is the important part of 1 Samuel 15 because this is where the teaching element comes in. This is where I'm not the king of Israel, you're not Saul, so we have to be very careful what we apply here. But this is the universal teaching of principle about who God is. This is for us right here. And as Saul is trying to hide behind the sacrifices, like we, we disobeyed God, but it was for a good purpose. Right? The, the ends justify the means. 
I know we disobeyed, but look at the ends. The ends were, it was a good reason we disobeyed because we now have ample sacrifices to offer to the Lord. And so what is Samuel's teaching point? Do you really think God cares about sacrifice more than obedience? You think, you think God is pleased when you disobey him so that you can offer a great sacrifice. And so Samuel teaches us what? The Lord has a greater delight in obedience and listening than he does in their outward religious ceremonies. He desires obedience and faithfulness more than he desires sacrifice. Now, this is a huge theme. Jesse, if you wouldn't mind, I know you blacked it out. If you could bring the PowerPoint back on. To save us time, I'm not going to have us flip to all of these verses, but just so you see how important verse 22 is, I want to show you this theme that Samuel establishes here that becomes prevalent throughout the rest of the Old Testament, and I would argue in the New as well. So I'm just going to read these verses. I won't provide commentary. I just want to read all these verses together with you. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required, then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me, I delight to do your will. Oh my God, your law is within my heart. That's from Psalm 40. The next slide. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. From Psalm 51. Next slide. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? This is the Lord speaking. What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. And my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Hosea chapter 6. Next slide. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and of the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. That is difficult language from Isaiah chapter 1. Next slide. This is the last one. For in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I did not speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. But this command I gave to them, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. And walk in all the way that I command you, that it may be well with you. From Jeremiah 7. So you see this repeated principle hammered throughout the Old Testament. That what is, if God has to pick between the two, between religious ceremonies and a devoted, obedient heart, which one does he want? He wants the heart each time, all day long. A faithful, loving, obedient heart is better than sacrifice. Your heart is better than your religiosity. It's more important. And by the way, back into 1 Samuel 15, he tells us why. 
in verse 23. He tells us that rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. So notice what happened when Samuel met Saul. Saul tried to downplay his sin, right? He, he tried to make less of it. It's not that bad because we mostly obeyed and the, re, the small little reasons why we didn't obey, we did for good reason. So he's really trying to lighten his sin. Like this really isn't that big of a deal. And so what does Samuel do? He does the exact opposite. He tries to heap a huge amount of guilt upon him. And how does he do that? He does that by reminding us of this very important principle that all sin is, and we're not saying all sin is equally equal before God, but all sin is extremely serious. And why? Because every sin you commit is ultimately a violation of the first commandment. Every sin you've ever committed has been a violation of some commandment of God. And then it's also simultaneously always been a violation of the first commandment. What's the most important commandment to God? The first commandment, have no other gods. I shall be your God. That we worship the one true God is the foundation for the rest of life. And every time we sin, we're not doing that. Because he tells us that rebellion, to rebel against the word of the Lord, is divination. It's to practice foreign religion. Now, how is that the case? Well, he continues, presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Let me try my best to explain the logic of this. When we sin, we take, we take God's commandment, and then we take our desires and our wants, and we compare them, we say, you know what? I'm going to go with me on this one. So what have you done? You've said that my will, my desire, is more foundational, more true, more important in this situation than God's. So what you've essentially done is you've divinized your will. To, 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 to worship the one true God is to claim he has all authority in heaven and earth, that, that he is the ultimate authority. And when you say, no, I, I don't really think God's right here. I'm going to go with my choice here. You are making yourself the ultimate authority. You have put your will on the throne where God's will belongs. You have made yourself God, and then by going after your new decree, you have served yourself the new God. So when you sin, you are worshiping yourself as God. Every sin is idolatry. Every time we sin, what we are doing with our actions, not with our mouths, but with our actions, we are saying, God, I'm God today. My, my will is going to reign on heaven and earth today. Your will can take a back seat to my will. This is really important that I do this. I know you say no. I need to do this. And so Samuel increases all of sin by saying every time you sin, when you disobey God, even for the sake of sacrifices, you're worshiping idols. You're no better than the Amalekites now. You're a pagan. You're an idolater. Rebellion is idolatry. We'll come back to that. Let's finish this narrative, though. Let's finish this narrative. 24 through the end. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I have feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord. And the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned away to go, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. 
And also, the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death has passed. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. So the text ends with the finality of God's decision. The finality of God's decision. God has rejected Saul, and he is not going back on this. He's not turning away from this. Saul has allegedly confessed and asked for forgiveness. And perhaps God has forgiven him his sin, but he has not changed the consequences of the sin. But even in this, don't you still continue to see the, the, the pride of Saul? What is Saul, after we read the last portion of his narrative, what is Saul most concerned about right now? His reputation. Please, just go, go back. There's a party going on. There's a feast going on. And I, I don't want to go back to the people after I just met with Samuel. And then they're going to know something's wrong. And then they're going to know I got in trouble. They're going to wonder why the prophet's not with me. It's going to embarrass me. Will you please just go back with me? And at first Samuel says no. He eventually gives in and does that. But he doesn't even seem, he does seem concerned with his sin and that he's lost kingship of Israel. But the text seems to emphasize his primary concern right now is what the people think of him. He even admits that the reason he sinned was because he gave into the people's voice. He says, I have sinned. I have obeyed the voice of the people rather than the voice of the Lord. So really, we get this insight. What is the desire of Saul's heart? I think it's the praise of men. We learned in a previous chapter that this foretold man, the man that is better than Saul, in a previous chapter, he is referred to as a man after God's own heart. God wants a king of Israel who's after God's heart, who's after the applause of God. Saul's after the applause of men. Saul fears the people. So we continue to see the downfall of Saul, but we continue to see the glory of Samuel. I say this just as a brief side note. This isn't in my notes. If you've ever been in any kind of position of leadership, at some point in time, you've had to have a hard conversation with someone. Some of us are wired a little bit more passive-aggressively than others. But to some degree, hard relationships with people we love, nobody looks forward to that. You think Samuel was looking forward to confronting Saul and telling him all this? And not only that, many of us have had hard conversations, but very few of us, I would venture, I'm not a betting man, but I'd be willing to bet nobody has ever had to follow up a hard conversation with hacking another human being to pieces afterward with a sword. I see a laugh. Tech, maybe technically our surgeons do. But you can imagine, Samuel himself has been sent on a difficult mission. Samuel has been sent on his own difficult mission. Well, you know what we see here? We see that God's commandments are almost, well, from a grand perspective, they're never arbitrary. God's commandments are not arbitrary. When God said, I need you to slaughter all of the people, he wasn't just making something up to test them. 
There was a, we talked about this two weeks ago. There was a good reason for this. So the job needed to be done. And Agag and his arrogance, Agag's thinking, if they wanted to kill me, they would have done it a long time ago. So he comes to Samuel cheerfully. The bitterness of death has passed. They're not looking to kill me. So he comes cocky and proud. And then it's Samuel, not Saul, who brings about just retribution to an evil man. But make no mistake about it, this was a, a difficult day for Samuel. But he obeyed the Lord's voice. Saul did not. And so the finality of God's decision is set. And we need to prepare ourselves for a new king of Israel. What do we do then with this sad text? Kind of a depressed ending. Well, as I said, I, I want us to really focus the remainder of our time on verses 22 through 23. This is where God is revealing himself to us with great clarity. This is a description of God, a teaching moment from God about who he is and what he desires. And so I want us to ask, what is it that we learn from this text? Specifically, verse 22 and 23. What do we learn? And this is what I think we learn. This is sort of the thesis, if you will. I've described it this way, and then I'm going to go back and sort of justify my language. If someone asks you, what did you learn in the sermon today? I hope you say something like this. God desires faithful obedience to Christ before he desires religious ceremonies. God desires faithful obedience to Christ before, you could even probably say more so, than he desires religious ceremonies. So I want to go back to our introduction. Is Christianity a relationship, not a religion? Is relationship better than religion? And the answer to that is no, but almost. Again, they're on to something here. It's, it's not true because God does desire your religion. God desires you to be a religious person. But what God desires more so than your religiosity, what God desires prior to your religiosity is you. God does not so much desire what you can do for him as much as he desires you. God does want your ceremonies. He wants your religiosity. But before any of that can take place, he needs your heart first. He needs you first. You see, Christianity is actually the beautiful blending of religion and relationship. It's religion and relationship coming together in a beautiful harmony. But the problem is what we've seen in human experience is these things can, by sinful men, be cut apart from each other. They can be separated, and then we can sinfully overemphasize one to the other. So certainly, the, one of the reasons why I'm so hesitant of this religion versus relationship phrase is because I have seen with my own eyes the detrimental consequences of someone relying on, well, Christianity is a relationship. It's not a religion. I've seen what happens when we overemphasize the relationship, the relationship aspect, when we exclude the religious aspect to the relationship. And that usually looks like people like this. People who who put all their, their eggs in the relationship basket. These are people who claim to love God, who claim to believe in Christ, but they don't go to church. Some of them maybe have not been baptized. They have no communion with the saints. They show very little interest in maturation and theological growth. They're very turned off by churchy things. 
music that's too churchy, religious ceremonies, any kind of formality, you realize there are people, there are uh, professing Christians in this country that would visit our church and be horrified with some of the things we do. Right? We, we technically chant. When, when, when we confess our sins corporately together to a relationship-only-minded Christian, they come in here and they see a bunch of stoic cult robots all chanting together. Lord God, please confess our sins. That terrifies them because it's so formal and it's stiff and it's churchy. And God wants, relig- he wants relationship. They become very seeker sensitive and all they really are focused on are just doing whatever I want and having fun with God while I do it. It's a very dangerous place today. But what we need to recognize is what our text is talking about is the other end. There is another end to that spectrum. There is another ditch to fall into on the other side of the road. And I would argue it's potentially even more dangerous. And that is, it is possible not just for the relationship people to exclude religion, but it's very possible for the religious people to exclude the relationship. This is a huge theme throughout Scripture. What does this look like? It's the exact opposite. These are people who go to church every single Sunday. They've been baptized. Maybe they've even gone on a missions trip. They've been to a lot of Bible studies. They went to youth group their entire life. But Monday through Saturday, there is no spiritual vitality. There's no thoughts of God. There's no spiritual conversations. There's no desire to grow and to mature. No talks of obedience. It's, you, you would never guess that these people have this living, vibrant, loving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ based on the conversations you have with them Monday through Saturday. And some of them, the hypocrisy is so severe. They live in such a way that you would assume there's no way these people are Christians. And you're shocked to find out they go to church every single Sunday. They perhaps don't pay attention. They don't give it their all when they're singing. They do other things during the sermon. But they're religious, right? They're doing what God commands, right? This is exactly a modern day application of what the text is talking about. God desires your obedience. Some of the other texts said your love. He desires your love, your obedience, not your religiosity. This is exactly what Jesus meant when he told the scribes and Pharisees this, he says in Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. What a great analogy. Jesus would have been the best newspaper cartoonist. This is so this is such a perfect analogy. What is he saying? It's amazing. Even today, we, when a loved one dies, one of the reasons why so many people today choose cremation is because coffins are so expensive. Funerals are expensive, which is a really sad bit of our... I'm not saying I have a solution to it, but as a side note, that's very unfortunate. But nonetheless, you can find coffins. You can spend thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars on a coffin. It can be shiny and artistic and beautiful. And what do we do? We come and we put flowers around it. Now, I'm not saying any of that is wrong, but this is the point of the metaphor. From the outward appearance, this is like one of the most gorgeous things you've ever seen. But I dare you to open it up in a couple years. It's disgusting inside. I don't mean that to be rude to the person, but that's just the the biological case. It's gross. There's a dead, decaying person in there. It smells bad. It looks gross. But on the outside, this is beautiful. This is the kind of thing that God is saying he hates. 
People who on the outside, they look great. These people, man, they're church attendants. They go to church every single week. They don't just go during the holidays like those relationship people. They go every single week. They go to the classes. They sing the songs. They do the chants. They do the confessions. They go through the motions. But they're dead inside. If you were to open up their chest and look at their heart, it's just dead bones in there. Their religiosity does not make up for their dead hearts. That's what we're getting at here. Religion is good, but it is no replacement for constant faith-driven obedience to God. No ceremony can make up for your unfaithfulness. As a matter of fact, what we see is that unfaithfulness pollutes the ceremonies, which is why in Isaiah 1, God could say, I hate them. They're a burden to me. A dead person going to church every Sunday, you could argue God hates that. It's not even a good thing. Our unfaithful hearts pollute our ceremonies. The fact that here's the sad fact of the, the, the matter. This is a true statement. It's very sad. I don't delight to say this, but this is very true and it's very sad, but it's a wake-up call for all of us. That on the day of judgment, hell will be filled with baptized churchgoers. Hell will be filled with baptized churchgoers. Because we learn in this text that God primarily desires our hearts, our faith, our obedience before all the religious stuff. My wife posted a quote on her Facebook page this week that I thought captured this in its essence so perfectly. Steve Lawson, pastor, said this, Many will miss heaven by 18 inches. That's the distance from your head to your heart. They know about Christ, but they don't know him. You can be religious, but lost. You can have the Bible in your head, but not have Christ in your heart. You see, Saul was fine with all the religious stuff. Yeah, save the cattle. Let's, uh, that's good for the sacrifices. Let's keep offering the sacrifices. Let's keep doing the new moons and the feast days and the sacrifices. God says, where's your heart? If you don't love me, I don't want those sacrifices. God prefers your religion, or forgive me, he prefers your relationship before your religion. And so let me teach us how to apply this text. You might say it's easy, but I'm going to argue there's a couple important things we need to focus on. We have our thesis. How do we apply it in the 21st century? Well, I want us to notice this. Notice that I've been talking kind of a broader term than the text does. I've been talking about relationship, but the text specifically is talking about obedience. Not relationship with the broad term, but obedience. God desires obeying more than sacrifices. God desires listening more than the fat of rams. So where's this relationship talk come in? But I think because the text emphasizes something subtly here that the New Testament makes explicitly clear. And that is that on this issue, we cannot separate obedience from faith. On this issue, we can't separate faith from works. There, there are times when we have to distinguish those things, like when we're talking about the doctrine of justification. Right? Paul says we are justified by faith apart from works of the law. So we have to distinguish between them, but this is a package deal that we cannot separate, and sometimes one speaks for the other. In other words, your faith and your obedience can be seen as essentially the same thing. And we know that because of what we discussed in verse 23. Right? God tells through Samuel, God tells Saul that I desire your obedience 
And why do I desire your obedience? Because what is disobedience? It's not loving me. (laughs) It's worshiping another God. We see this incredible relationship between our obedience and how it springs from a right and true heart relationship and love for God. This is made even more explicit, though, in the New Testament. In the same way that God said when he tells Samuel why he was so upset, he talked about how Saul turned from him and then disobeyed the commandments. There was a rejection of faith and relationship which led to disobedience. And that relationship goes both ways in the New Testament. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. True obedience springs from faith. In 1 John 5, 3, it goes even further to say this, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. How do you know you love God? How do you know you have a relationship with God? You obey him. That's what love of God is. This is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. Hearts that are in the general disposition of trying to obey God, seeking after the will of God, though imperfectly, that is what it means to know God. That is what it looks like to love God. So we cannot separate these things. But the New Testament takes us even a step further in our revelation. And that is, okay, so I know I have to have faith in God. I have to believe in God in order to have the true obedience that God desires more than sacrifice. But what does the New Testament say? How do you believe in God? How do you have faith in God? Well, the New Testament is very clear. That's where Jesus comes in. I am the way, truth, and life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. You cannot love God apart from Christ. Christ says that any, the the New Testament says that anybody who does not love the Son, who does not have the Son, does not have the Father. You can't separate them. So we need to believe in God. We need to have faith in God in order to be obedient. And how do we have faith in God? By having faith in Christ. It is the Apostle Paul who says, For in Christ Jesus... There is neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Remember the religious circumcision, those religious ceremonies in Christ, they don't mean anything. What means something? Once you're in Christ, what matters? A faith that works, a loving faith. Faith and obedience is what God looks for in Christ. Jesus says it even more explicitly. He says, I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So if you want to try to obey God, you see in the text, God wants my obedience. Okay, I'm going to listen to the voice of God and I'm going to obey him. But you try to do that outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ, Jesus himself tells you, you can't do that. You cannot produce fruit outside of Jesus You have no nurture. You have no sustenance. You have no aid. The only way we can truly obey God is by having a faithful relationship with Christ Jesus. So true religion begins with Christ and then it moves to obedience, which then moves to piety. So it's Christ, obedience, religion. So how do you apply our thesis today? It's very easy now that we've seen it. Step number one, you need to come to Christ. You cannot fulfill the principle here outside of Christ. He is the vine. You are the branch. Come to Christ. Put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Once you come to Christ and you're united to him by faith and receive the Holy Spirit, now you are empowered to do the second step, and that's obey God. You'll do it imperfectly. We all will. 
But the church is a means of grace. We're going to come together and help each other, encourage each other, confess our sins. Remember, we're forgiven in the gospel. You won't be perfect, but you will have a new heart that longs to obey God. You will be men and women who seek after the heart of God. So believe in Jesus, obey God, and then the last step, that's when your religion comes in. Now it's time for piety. It's time to get baptized. It's time to partake of the Eucharist. It's time to go to church. It's time to confess your sins, to pray, to read your Bible, to memorize your Bible, maybe go on mission trips, to tithe to your local church, to go to studies, to love your neighbor, to serve the orphan, serve the widow, serve the oppressed. All of your piety and religiosity is important and it matters to God, but that fruit will be spoiled if it doesn't first begin with relationship that you have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ and through him you have a love and vitality for and with God. So God does not present Christianity as relationship versus religion or over religion. Religion is a good thing. But your religion is worthless without your relationship. So keep this in mind as we close. God desires you before your religion. God wants you before your religion.